0: Preface of The Devil's Pool. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Devil's Pool by Georges Sand, translated by George B. Ives. Notice When I began with The Devil's Pool, a series of rustic pictures which I proposed to collect under the title of The Hemp-Beater's Tales, I had no theory, no purpose, to effect a revolution in literature. No one can bring about a revolution by himself alone, and there are revolutions, especially in matters of art, which mankind accomplishes without any very clear idea how it is done, because everybody takes a hand in them. But this is not applicable to the romance of rustic manners. It has existed in all ages and under all forms, sometimes pompous, sometimes affected, sometimes artless. I have said, and I say again here, the dream of a country life has always been the ideal of cities, I, and of courts. I have done nothing new in following the incline that leads civilized man back to the charms of primitive life. I have not intended to invent a new language or to create a new style. I have been assured of the contrary in a large number of feuilletons, but I know better than any one what to think about my own plans, and I am always astonished that the critics dig so deep for them, when the simplest ideas, the most commonplace incidents, are the only inspirations to which the products of art owe their being. As for the devil's pool in particular, the incident that I have related in the preface, an engraving of Holbein's that had made an impression upon me, and a scene from real life that came under my eyes at the same moment in sewing time those were what impelled me to write this modest tale the scene of which is laid amid humble localities that i used to visit every day if any one asks me my purpose in writing it i shall reply that i desire to do a very simple and very touching thing and that i have not succeeded as i hoped i have seen i have felt the beautiful in the simple but to see and to depict are two different things. The most that the artist can hope to do is to induce those who have eyes to look with him. Therefore, my friends, look at simple things. Look at the sky and the fields and the trees and the peasants, especially at what is good and true in them. You will see them to a slight extent in my book. You will see them much better in nature. Jour Nohant. April 12, 1851. CHAPTER I. THE AUTHOR TO THE READER A la Sieur de ton visage, tu gagneras ta pauvre vie. Après long travail et usage, voici l'amour qui te convie. The quatrain, in Old French, written below one of Holbein's pictures, is profoundly sad in its simplicity. The engraving represents a plowman driving his plow through a field. A vast expanse of country stretches away in the distance, with some poor cabins here and there. The sun is setting behind the hill. It is the close of a hard day's work. The peasant is a short, thick set man, old and clothed in rags. The four horses that he urges forward are thin and gaunt. The ploughshare is buried in rough, unyielding soil. A single figure is joyous and alert in that scene of sweat and toil. It is a fantastic personage a skeleton armed with a whip who runs in the furrow beside the terrified horses and belabours them thus serving the old husbandman as a ploughboy this spectre which holbein has introduced allegorically in the succession of philosophical and religious subjects at once lugubrious and burlesque entitled the dance of death is death itself in that collection or rather in that great book in which death playing his part on every page is the connecting link and the dominant thought Holbein has marshaled sovereigns, pontiffs, lovers, gamblers, drunkards, nuns, courtesans, brigands, paupers, soldiers, monks, Jews, travellers, the whole world of his day and of ours, and everywhere the spectre of death mocks and threatens and triumphs. From a single picture only is it absent. It is the one in which Lazarus, the poor man, lying on a dunghill at the rich man's door, declares that he does not fear death doubtless because he has nothing to lose and his life is premature death is that stoicist idea of the half pagan christianity of the renaissance very comforting and do devout souls find consolation therein the ambitious man the rascal the tyrant the rake all those haughty sinners who abuse life and whom death holds by the hair are destined to be punished without doubt But are the blind man, the beggar, the madman, the poor peasant recompensed for their long life of misery by the single reflection that death is not an evil for them? No. An implacable melancholy, a ghastly fatality overshadows the artist's work. It resembles a bitter imprecation upon the fate of mankind. There truly do we find the grievous satire, the truthful picture of the society Holbein had under his eyes. Crime and misfortune. Those are what impressed him. But what shall we depict, we artists of another age? Shall we seek in the thought of death the reward of mankind in the present day? Shall we invoke it as the punishment of injustice, and the gurdon of suffering? No, we have no longer to deal with death, but with life. We no longer believe either in the nothingness of the tomb, or in salvation purchased by obligatory renunciation. We want life to be good, because we want it to be fruitful. Lazarus must leave his dunghill, so that the poor may no longer rejoice at the death of the rich. All must be happy, so that the happiness of some may not be a crime and accursed curse of God. The husbandman, as he sows his grain, must know that he is working at the work of life, and not rejoice because death is walking beside him. In a word, death must no longer be the punishment of prosperity or the consolation of adversity god did not destine death as a punishment or a compensation for life for he blessed life and the grave should not be a refuge to which it is permitted to send those who cannot be made happy certain artists of our time casting a serious glance upon their surroundings strive to depict grief the abjectness of poverty lazarus's dunghill that may be within the domain of art and philosophy but by representing poverty as so ugly so base and at times so vicious and criminal a thing, do they attain their end, and is the effect as salutary as they could wish? We do not dare to say. We may be told that by pointing out the abyss that yawns beneath the fragile crust of opulence, they terrify the wicked rich man, as, in the time of the danse macabre, they showed him in its yawning ditch, and death ready to wind its uncleaned arms about him. Today they show him the thief picking his lock, the assassin watching until he sleeps we confess that we do not clearly understand how they will reconcile him with the humanity he despises how they will move his pity for the sufferings of the poor man whom he fears by showing him that same poor man in the guise of the escaped felon and the burglar ghastly death gnashing his teeth and playing the violin in the productions of holbein and his predecessors found it impossible in that guise to convert the perverse and to comfort their victims. Is it not a fact that the literature of our day is in this respect following to some extent in the footsteps of the artists of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance? Holbein's drunkards fill their glasses in a sort of frenzied desire to put aside the thought of death, who, unseen by them, acts as their cupbearer. The wicked rich men of to-day demand fortifications and cannon to put aside the thought of a rising of the Jacquerie, whom art shows them at work in the shadow, separately awaiting the moment to swoop down upon society. The Church of the Middle Ages answered the terrors of the powerful ones of the earth by selling indulgences. The government of to-day allays the anxiety of the rich by making them pay for many gendarmes and jailers, bayonets, and prisons. Albert Durer, Michelangelo, Holbein, Callot, Goya, produce powerful satires upon the evils of their age and their country they are immortal works historical pages of unquestionable value we do not undertake therefore to deny artists the right to probe the wounds of society and lay them bare before our eyes but is there nothing better to be done to-day than to depict the terrifying and the threatening in this literature of mysteries of antiquity which talent and imagination have made fashionable We prefer the mild attractive figures to the villains for dramatic effect the former may undertake and effect conversions the others cause fear and fear does not cure egoism but increases it we believe that the mission of art is a mission of sentiment and love that the novel of today ought to replace the parable and the fable of simpler times and that the artist has a broader and more poetic task than that of suggesting a few prudential and conciliatory measures to lessen the alarm his pictures arouse. His object should be to make the objects of his solicitude lovable, and I would not reproach him for flattering them a little in case of need. Art is not a study of positive reality, it is a quest for ideal truth, and the Vicar of Wakefield was a more useful and healthy book for the mind than the Paisons Perverti or the Liaison Dangereuse. Reader, pardon these reflections, and deign to accept them by way of preface. There will be no other to the little tale I propose to tell you, and it will be so short and so simple that I felt that I must apologize beforehand by telling you what I think of terrifying tales. I allowed myself to be drawn into this digression apropos of a plowman. It is the story of a plowman that I set out to tell you, and will tell you forthwith. CHAPTER Two, THE PLOWING I had been gazing for a long time, and with profound sadness, at Holbein's plowman, and I was walking in the fields, musing upon country life, and the destiny of the husbandmen. Doubtless it is a depressing thing to consume one's strength and one's life, driving the plow through the bosom of the jealous earth, which yields the treasures of its fecundity only under duress, when a bit of the blackest and coarsest bread at the end of the day is the only reward and the only profit of such laborious toil the wealth that covers the ground the crops the fruit the proud cattle fattening on the long grass are the property of a few and the instruments of fatigue and slavery of the majority as a general rule the man of leisure does not love for themselves the fields or the meadows or the spectacle of nature or the superb beasts that are to be converted into gold pieces for his use the man of leisure comes to the country in search of a little air and health then returns to the city to spend the fruit of his vassal's toil the man of toil for his part is too crushed too wretched and too frightened concerning the future to enjoy the beauties of the landscape and the charms of rustic life to him also the golden fields the lovely meadows the noble animals represent bags of crowns of which he will have only a paltry share insufficient for his needs and yet those cursed bags must be filled every year to satisfy the master, and pay for the privilege of living sparingly and wretchedly on his domain. And still nature is always young and beautiful and generous. She sheds poetry and beauty upon all living things, upon all the plants that are left to develop in their own way. Nature possesses the secret of happiness, and no one has ever succeeded in wresting it from her. He would be the most fortunate of men, Who, possessing the science of his craft and working with his hands, deriving happiness and liberty from the exercise of his intelligent strength, should have time to live in the heart and the brain, to understand his work, and to love the work of God. The artist has enjoyment of that sort in contemplating and reproducing the beauties of nature, but when he sees the suffering of the men who people this paradise called the earth, the just, kind-hearted artist is grieved in the midst of his enjoyment where the mind heart and arms work in concert under the eye of providence true happiness would be found and a holy harmony would exist between the munificence of god and the delights of the human soul then instead of piteous ghastly death walking in his furrow whip in hand the painter of allegories could place beside the ploughman a radiant angel sowing the blessed grain in the smoking furrows with generous hand and the dream of a peaceful, free, poetical, laborious, simple existence for the husbandman is not so difficult of conception, that it need be relegated to a place among chimeras. The gentle, melancholy words of Virgil, Oh, how happy the life of the husbandman, if he but knew his happiness, is an expression of regret, but like all regrets it is also a prediction. A day will come, when the ploughman may be an artist, if not to express, which will then matter but little, perhaps, at all events, to feel, the beautiful. Do you believe that this mysterious intuition of Posy does not already exist within him, in the state of instinct and vague reverie? In those who have a little hoard for their protection to-day, and in whom excess of misery does not stifle all moral and intellectual development, pure happiness, felt and appreciated, is at the elementary stage, and furthermore, if poets' voices have already risen from the bosom of sorrow and fatigue, why should it be said that the work of the hands excludes the exercise of the functions of the mind? That exclusion is probably the general result of excessive toil and profound misery, but let it not be said that when men shall work only moderately and profitably, then there will be none but bad workmen and bad poets. He who derives noble enjoyment from the inward sentiment of poesy is a true poet, though he has never written a line in his life. My thoughts had taken this course, and I did not notice that this confidence in man's capacity for education was strengthened in my mind by external influences. I was walking along the edge of a field which the peasants were preparing for the approaching sowing. The field was an extensive one, like that in Holbein's picture. The landscape, too, was of great extent, and framed in broad lines of verdure, slightly reddened by the approach of autumn. The lusty brown earth, where recent rains had left in some of the furrows lines of water which sparkled in the sun like slender silver threads. It was a bright, warm day, and the ground, freshly opened by the sharp plowshares, exhaled a slight vapour. At the upper end of the field an old man, whose broad back and stern face recalled the man in Holbein's picture, but whose clothing did not indicate poverty, gravely drove his old-fashioned arro, drawn by two placid oxen, with pale yellow hides, veritable patriarchs of the fields, tall, rather thin, with long, blunt horns, hard-working old beasts, whom long companionship has made brothers, as they are called in our country districts, and who, when they are separated, refuse to work with new mates and die of grief. People who know nothing of the country call this alleged friendship of the ox for his yoke-fellow fabulous. Let them go to the stable, and look at a poor, thin, emaciated animal, lashing his sunken sides with his restless tail, sniffing with terror and contempt at the fodder that is put before him, his eyes always turned toward the door, pawing the empty place beside him, smelling the yoke and chains his companion wore and calling him incessantly with a pitiful bellow the driver will say there's a yoke of oxen lost his brother's dead and he won't work we ought to fatten him for killing but he won't eat and he'll soon starve to death the old ploughman was working slowly in silence without useless expenditure of strength his docile team seemed in no greater hurry than he but as he kept constantly at work never turning aside and exerting always just the requisite amount of sustained power his furrow was as quickly cut as his son's who was driving four less powerful oxen on some harder and more stony land a short distance away but the spectacle that next attracted my attention was a fine one indeed a noble subject for a painter at the other end of the arable tract a young man of attractive appearance was driving a superb team Four yoke of young beasts, black-coated with tawny spots that gleamed like fire, with the short curly heads that suggest the wild bull, the great wild eyes, the abrupt movements, the nervous, jerky way of doing their work, which shows that the yoke and goad still irritate them, and that they shiver with wrath as they yield to the domination newly imposed upon them. They were what are called oxen-freshly yoked, the man who was guiding them had to clear a field until recently used for pasturage, and filled with venerable stumps, an athlete's task which his energy, his youth, and his eight almost untamed beasts were hardly sufficient to accomplish. A child of six or seven years, as beautiful as an angel, with a lamb's fleece covering his shoulders over his blouse, so that he resembled the little St. John the Baptist of the painters of the Renaissance, was trudging along in the furrow beside the plough, and pricking the sides of the oxen with a long light stick, the end of which was armed with a dull goad. The proud beasts quivered under the child's small hand, and made the yokes and the straps about their foreheads groan, jerking the plough violently forward. When the plowshare struck a root, the driver shouted in a resonant voice, calling each beast by his name, but rather to soothe than to excite them for the oxen, annoyed by the sudden resistance, started forward, digging their broad forked feet into the ground, and would have turned aside, and dragged the plough across the field, had not the young man held the four leaders in check, with voice and goad, while the child handled the other four. He too shouted, poor little fellow, in a voice which he tried to render terrible, but which remained as sweet as his angelic face. The whole picture was beautiful in strength and in grace the landscape the man the child the oxen under the yoke and despite the mighty struggle in which the earth was conquered there was a feeling of peace and profound tranquillity hovering over everything when the obstacle was surmounted and the team resumed its even solemn progress the ploughman whose pretended violence was only to give his muscles a little practice and his vitality an outlet suddenly resumed the serenity of simple souls And cast a contented glance upon his child, who turned to smile at him. Then the manly voice of the young paterfamilias would strike up the solemn, melancholy tune which the ancient tradition of the province transmits not to all ploughmen without distinction, but to those most expert in the art of arousing and sustaining the spirit of working cattle. That song, whose origin was perhaps held sacred, and to which mysterious influences seem to have been attributed formerly, is reputed, even to the present day, to possess the virtue of keeping up the courage of those animals, of soothing their discontent, and of whiling away the tedium of their long tasks. It is not enough to have the art of driving them so as to cut the furrow, in an absolutely straight line, to lighten their labour by raising the share, or burrowing it deeper in the ground. A man is not a perfect ploughman, if he cannot sing to his cattle and that is a special science which requires special taste and powers to speak accurately this song is only a sort of recitative broken off and taken up again at pleasure its irregular form and its intonations false according to the rules of musical art make it impossible to reproduce but it is a fine song none the less and so entirely appropriate to the nature of the work it accompanies to the gait of the ox, to the tranquillity of rural scenes, to the simple manners of the men who sing it, that no genius unfamiliar with work in the fields could have invented it, and no singer other than a cunning ploughman of that region would know how to render it. At the time of year when there is no other work and no other sign of activity in the country than the ploughing, that sweet and powerful chant rises like the voice of the breeze which it resembles somewhat in its peculiar pitch the final word of each phrase sustained at incredible length and with marvelous power of breath ascends a fourth of a tone purposely making a discord that is barbarous perhaps but the charm of it is indescribable and when one is accustomed to hear it one cannot conceive of any other song at that time and in those localities that would not disturb the harmony it happened therefore that I had before my eyes a picture in striking contrast with Holbein's, although it might be a similar scene. Instead of a sad old man, a cheerful young man, instead of a team of thin, sorry horses, two yoke of four sturdy, spirited cattle, instead of death, a lovely child, instead of an image of despair and a suggestion of destruction, a spectacle of energetic action and a thought of happiness. Then it was that the French quatrain, à la sieur de ton visage etc and the o fortunatus agricolus of virgil came to my mind simultaneously and when i saw that handsome pair the man and the child performing a grand and solemn task under such poetic conditions and with so much grace combined with so much strength i had a feeling of profound compassion mingled with involuntary respect happy the husbandman yes so i should be in his place if my arm should suddenly become strong and my chest powerful so that they could thus fertilize nature and sing to her without my eyes losing the power to see and my brain to understand the harmony of colors and sounds the delicacy of tones and the gracefulness of contours in a word the mysterious beauty of things and above all without my heart ceasing to be in relation with the divine sentiment that presided at the immortal and sublime creation. But, alas, that man has never understood the mystery of the beautiful, that child will never understand it. God preserve me from the thought that they are not superior to the animals they guide, and that they have not at times a sort of ecstatic revelation that charms away their weariness and puts their cares to sleep. I see upon their noble brows the seal of the Lord God, for they are born kings of the earth much more truly than they who possess it, because they have paid for it. And the proof that they feel that it is so is found in the fact that you cannot expatriate them with impunity, and that they love the ground watered by the sweat of their brow, that the true peasant dies of homesickness in the uniform of the soldier, far from the fields where he was born. But that man lacks a part of the enjoyments I possess immaterial enjoyments to which he is abundantly entitled he the workman in the vast temple which the heavens are vast enough to embrace he lacks knowledge of his own sentiments they who condemned him to servitude from his mother's womb being unable to take from him the power of reverie have taken the power of reflection ah well such as he is incomplete and doomed to never-ending childhood he is nobler even so than he in whom knowledge has stifled sentiment. Do not place yourselves above him, you who consider yourselves endowed with the lawful and inalienable right to command him, for that terrible error proves that in you the mind has killed the heart, and that you are the most incomplete and the blindest of men. I prefer the simplicity of his mind to the false enlightenment of yours, and if I had to tell his life, it would be more pleasant for me to bring out its attractive and affecting aspects than it is credible to you to depict that abject condition to which the scornful rigor of your social precepts may debase him. I knew that young man and that beautiful child. I knew their story, for they had a story. Everybody has his story, and everybody must arouse interest in the romance of his own life if he but understood it. Although a peasant and a simple ploughman, Germain had taken account of his duties and his affections he had detailed them to me ingeniously one day and i had listened to him with interest when i had watched him at work for a considerable time i asked myself why his story should not be written although it was as simple as straightforward and as devoid of ornament as the furrow he made with his plough next year that furrow will be filled up and covered by a new furrow thus the majority of men make their mark and disappear in the field of humanity a little earth effaces it, and the furrows we have made succeed one another like graves in the cemetery. Is not the furrow of the plowman as valuable as that of the idler, who has a name, however, a name that will live if, by reason of some peculiarity or some absurd exploit, he makes a little noise in the world? So let us, if we can, rescue from oblivion the furrow of Germain, the cunning plowman. He will know nothing about it, and will not be disturbed, but I shall have had a little pleasure in making the attempt. End of Author's Note and Chapters 1 and 2 of The Devil's Pool